chapter 4. Our reading is 421 through 31. The context really includes chapter 5, verse 1. Sometimes the paragraphs, divisions really don't get the, uh, the idea of the original, so we'll go ahead and read through 5.1 because I think it's all of Paul's thought there about standing fast in our liberty that's in Christ. Verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic or allegorical. For these are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this is Hagar in Mount Sinai in Arabia, and it corresponds or it answers to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, and you who do not bear, break forth and shout. You who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of bondage, of the bondwoman, but of the free. Lord God, thank you that we are free in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we can stand fast in that liberty, that that is our position, that Christ has made us free. And God, it's so easy for us to get entangled with things that bring us under bondage. Good things, sinful things, adding things to Scripture. And so, Lord God, today, help us to find your heart in this passage of Scripture. God, help us to align our thoughts with your thoughts. Help us, God, to walk in your ways. Father, there are some practical things that we as your people can grow and learn from today. So I pray, Father, that you would open our ears, that we might have ears to hear. God, I pray that it wouldn't just be another spiritual exercise that we go through on a Sunday morning, God. Father, that this would be a time where we meet with you and where your living word speaks to our souls. God, we are needy, we are hungry, and God, today we come to you and we open our mouths wide 
asking you to fill us. Lord, God forbid that we would walk out unchanged and unaffected by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When I was reading this and going over it this week, I noticed that three times references were being made to the Old Testament. Um, last week, I introduced some visitors, and so I'll go ahead and do that again. You know, it's, um, it's Memorial Day weekend, and so we are missing some people, but the, one of the blessings is, is we get to gain some people, too. So we've got people that wouldn't normally be here, and so Nancy's got a row of sisters. <laughs> they're, they're, they're quadruplets. <laughs> They're all the same age. <laughs> um, we're glad to have them with us. And then Claudia has her nephew and um, his daughter. They have been making a tour of the West. And um, so that's neat. They're going to be heading to Yellowstone, the Tetons, and then up to Big Sky Country, um, up in Dan's cabin. So we're glad... Did I miss any visitors? I don't have my glasses on. Um, I can't read out of them. I can't see y'all, so I'm just a mess. Um, do have one other thing I want to share. Um, before Mitch leaves today, I'm sure you'll see him again, but it was a quick eight months. Um, last Thursday, he and I meet, and he came in. He says, uh, Pastor, this is, this is my last week. I said, no, Mitch. You can't be. He says, yeah. I said, no, you're going to stay here for eight more months, aren't you? He says, no, it, went, it flew. I wanted him to, to, to teach one more time, and I thought, it's just, it's gotten away. It's gone. Um, but pray for Mitch. He's going to be helping a, a church in Brigham City, and that God will use him there, that God will teach him what he needs to learn, to take on, to be a better equipped minister, to take the gospel to a needy part of Utah. Um, so we'll, we'll get another young man, from uh, a graduate from Frontier School of the Bible. Some of our young people already know him. Uh, his name is Jordan. And uh, so we'll look forward to the next eight months with another, another intern. And hopefully we're not going to ruin them by staying, <laughs> letting them stay here at North Valley Bible Church. Okay. So, um, you know, Caleb kind of gave me a good introduction when he was talking about his conversation with, with Ben because this passage really kind of deals with that, that tendency to, to swing the pendulum and we react. Many of us have been around what I call legalistic churches. Um, I, the first church that I pastored it was definitely on that pendulum swing of, of complete legalism. There was no freedom to worship. There was no freedom to choose what Bible you read from, what songs you sang, what you wear, the length of your hair, the earrings that you could wear. I mean, it went on and on and on. And that was a part of that church. And that was their culture. And when Tracy and I left that ministry, we didn't want to swing to the other end of it, but in a sense we kind of did, but we really f 
found a biblical middle ground, I think. We no longer met in a building. We met in our home. We had no bulletins. We took up no offerings. We had no time when the church ended. It was freedom in Christ. There were no songs that were pre-selected. Everyone came and was expected to minister to one another. It was complete freedom. And so it may have swung a little bit to the other side because at 6 o'clock in the evening and Tracy and I wanted some alone time, there were still kids running around our house because it was all college kids. They didn't have any place else to go and they loved being in our home. Um, but to swing to the other side of legalism, we tend to go into just a licensed lifestyle and we say, I'm free in Christ. And I, re I remember one guy, and uh, he just, he came to church whenever he wanted to. He would just pick and choose what Sundays he was going to come. And his rationale was, well, I'm free in Christ, and I don't have to be there every Sunday. That's legalism. And so that extreme, I think, misses the heart of, of the Bible, of Christ, because I I don't come to church because I have to. You don't come to church because you have to. You come to church because this is where your brothers and sisters meet. This is where you have a spiritual gift that can be contributed to the body of Christ. And it's a place where you can be fed and be ministered unto as you minister unto other people. And that's, that's the biblical balance. And, and so Paul was always under attack that his gospel was leading to a licentious life. He wrote the Romans, and this is what he said to them, and not rather, as we are slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, let us do evil so that good may come. Let's just live however we want to, so the more I live in the world... The more ungodly I am, the more grace God's going to dispense on me. And Paul said, that's what we're being slanderously reported at, because I am preaching a gospel that is free, a gospel that is grace, that excludes any repentance in the sense of, I've got to pledge everything that I'm ever going to do to the lordship of Jesus, and if I don't do that, I'm really not saved. And Paul said, that's not the gospel. The gospel is, I repent. Yes, I repent. But the Greek word is the word meta, which means another, and noia, which means to think. So I repent toward God. I change my mind, and I acknowledge, yes, God is holy, and I am a sinner, and I place my faith in Jesus. That is the free grace gospel that Paul preached. Repentance toward God. I know that God is going to judge my sin and God doesn't look favorably on my sin. And I don't treat my sin as a light thing. It is a serious matter. And I've got to change my mind and change the way I think and that I can't save myself. I've got to repent and thinking that my good works are going to merit salvation. Or I've got to repent and thinking that one day my good deeds are going to outweigh my bad deeds. No, I need to repent. I need to change my mind. And I need to place my faith in Jesus Christ that his righteousness alone is sufficient for salvation. 
And so he was being accused of saying, just live however you want to. And then he went on to say the rest of that verse, he says, people that say that, their condemnation is just. What he meant is, if that's what you think grace is, you've never really understood the power of grace. Paul wrote this to Titus. He says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness, worldly lusts, to live soberly and righteously in this present age, looking for that blessed hope and great appearing of our God and Savior. That's what grace really does. Grace changes us. Should I continue in sin so that grace could abound, Romans 6, 1, God forbid. How shall we who are dead to sin, that's our position in Christ, sin no longer is my master. I am no longer under condemnation. I'm no longer guilty. If I am dead to those things, how can I continue to live in sin? Know you not as many as us that were baptized into Jesus, were baptized into his death, that like as Christ was buried and rose again, even so you and I are to walk in the newness of life. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's not rules that change you. It's grace changing you from the inside out. I think there's another reason that we kind of swing the pendulum, and that is sometimes we see that I need people to come alongside me and sort of get me in the right line. And so I'm thinking that this is wisdom in the sense that I need all these rules, and, if I, t- and if, I, if I tell you when and what to do, that somehow you're going to grow. And the Colossians had kind of gone down that rabbit hole, and Paul said this to them. He says, these things, all the rules, all the strictness, all the watching of what you say and your television and how much time you're on your phone... He says, those things have an appearance of wisdom. Now, I'm not saying that we ought to just throw the doors wide open and just watch whatever garbage is on the boob tube or whatever comes up on my phone. I should just watch it and read or whatever pops up on the Facebook. It's good stuff and just, just imbibe in it. But you see, we start to think that, well, maybe I should just get rid of my phone. Maybe I'll just get rid of my computer. Maybe I'm just going to go and be a, you know, live in a cloister somewhere and I'm going to be holy. Paul says that has an appearance of wisdom, self-imposed religion, and asceticism, and severe, strict discipline to the body, but they're no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In fact, they actually feed the indulgence of your flesh, because then you start thinking you're more spiritual than other people. Look at the Bible that I've got. It's this thick. And you've got this little paper Bible that's the new international translation or whatever. I've got Old King James, and boy, mine's more holy than yours, or whatever it is. So the proper use of the law in this passage, Paul uses three times. He says it in verse 21, don't you hear the law? And then in verse 27, he says, for it is written. He says, here's what the law says, and this is how it ought to be used. And then one more time, 
in verse 30, he says, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? It is written, don't you even hear the law? And so my message this morning is the incompatibility between law and grace. These things don't, don't they, they can't work together. They're mutually exclusive. They're diametrically opposed. Law and grace don't work together. And Paul gives three arguments using those references of the scripture. But I think there's another meaning, and I'm going to kind of diverge from the passage, and I'm going to look at how you and I should come to the Bible. You see, Paul is writing to Judaizers, Jewish people who knew the law. They knew the Bible, and yet they didn't understand the Bible. And that's kind of what I want to address today, is that when we read the Bible, we shouldn't approach the Bible in a legalistic way. I've read my Bible, and I've done it, and there's my checklist. Secondly, we shouldn't approach the Bible as some kind of mystical, spiritual, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I know what I'm trying to say. I can't put it in words. Like it's some kind of magic potion book where I can just, oh, here's a, here's a verse for me. That the, the, the Bible's got some kind of hidden message. Now, when Paul says, I am taking this allegorically, the story of Abraham and his wives, Sarah and Hagar, Paul does not mean that the Old Testament was just an allegorical book. Paul believes in the historical narrative that it was a literal story. Creation is a little literal story. It is, creation is not poetry. The historical of narr, narrative of Abraham and his, not, and his life isn't just some kind of fuzzy, good-feeling story. That's not what he's getting at. What Paul is saying is there is a deeper spiritual meaning to God's Word, and you need to come to it with a balance. I need to come to this book knowing it is a living, breathing entity. It is God's breath, theonuptos. All Scripture is God-breathed. So I've got to come to this book like David did. And David prayed this when he came to God's word. He prayed and said, O Lord God, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things from thy law. David prayed, with my whole heart have I sought thee. Let me not wander from thy commandments. David prayed, I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. So first of all, I've got to come to the Bible not solely as an academic book. It is a spiritual book. But that does not negate my responsibility as a Bible student to study and to know God's word. So I've got to have this balance. I come to God's word and I say, God, I cannot understand this with my natural eyes. The natural man does not receive the things of God, for they are foolishness to him, for they are spiritually discerned. First John says, he has given us an anointing from the Holy One so that I don't need to be taught by anyone, for that same anointing teaches us all things. 
So it is a spiritual book that is taught by spiritual principles. The Holy Spirit has to teach it to us. But that doesn't mean that I just come to it and expect God to mystically tell me what it means. There's a balance. And so on the other side, Paul wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, and he said, Timothy, study to show thyself approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul said to Timothy, he said, Timothy, do not neglect the spiritual gift that's been given to you by the laying on the hands of the eldership. Meditate on those things. Give yourself entirely to them so that your profiting may appear to all and that you will save not only yourself but also those who hear you. So there's this balance that we need to come to when we approach the Bible. And Paul is telling these Judaizers, you have missed the heart and the soul of the Bible. Legalism is good at doing that. Jesus came and he addressed the Pharisees. And he says, Pharisees, in Matthew 23, 23, he says, you tithe, mint, and anise, and cumin. And yet you've left out justice, mercy, love, and faith. He says, those things you should have been doing. Yes, you should have been tithing those things. But you've left the most important things undone. He says, you guys, when you come to your wine cups, and you see it starting to ferment a little bit, and you've got these little tiny gnats starting to drop on your wine, ooh, that gnat's an unclean animal. I can't swallow that. So they take their wine and they strain out the gnats. And he says, in the meantime, you guys are chugging down camels. <laughs> Jesus had a good sense of humor. What he meant, and I think we all get it, you're looking at the little minutest details, and yet the heart of God, the very soul of what God is really after, you're missing it completely. And that's what Paul is saying to the Galatians who are being influenced by these Judaizers. You come to the Bible. You know it backwards and forwards. You're so extreme about it. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, said that the Bible was to be sewed to our shirt sleeves and to be frontlets between our eyes. Now, God didn't mean literally that I'm supposed to have memory verses in my arm with a big phylactery box and another phylactery box on my forehead and walk around all day long, look and say, look how spiritual Pastor Cross is. He's got Bible verses stuck in his sleeves and he's got them before his forehead. That's what the Pharisees were doing. The point is that God wants us to have the living word in our heart, that it's almost right here on my hand and right here on my mind. That's the point of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so this hysterical, historical narrative has got a deeper meaning that Paul is wanting the Galatians to understand. He says there were two sons, and one was born according to the flesh, and the other one is born according to promise. Now, these represent two ways that you and I live our lives. Either we live our lives in the flesh, or we're living it based on the promises and walking with God and listening to His Word. 
There's no other way about it. And Abraham is the perfect example, he says. He had two sons. Now, when he uses the word according to the flesh, the context has to dictate how that is it's interpreted. Sometimes the flesh means our sinful nature that's contrary to God. Other times the word flesh simply means our natural human ways of living out our life, the natural way of life. And that's what Paul means here. Hagar was not doing something sinful. Sarah was not doing something sinful. Stupid, yes, but not sinful. In fact, she was obeying the normal laws of her time. The Newsy tablets, which were written at the same time of Abraham, tell us that if a woman is barren, that she can give her slave as a proxy for her husband so that the inheritance will not be lost. The Law Code of Hammurabi, written the exact same time period, it says the exact same thing, that if you are a barren woman, you can give your slave as a proxy to ensure that the inheritance passed on to a son. So Hagar and Sarah were doing nothing. They were just doing what was natural. And many times as you watch the narrative of Abraham, you see him vacillate between doing what is just natural and what is expected and what seems to be logical, or he's acting in accordance with God's promises and walking by faith. Don't you hear what the Scripture is saying? And Paul wants us, and he wanted the Galatians, not to act in their natural ways of responding to things. And we see several examples throughout Abraham's life. So we can either act in our flesh, our natural man, our ordinary course of nature, and that's not to say that God does not work through ordinary courses of nature. God does work through the ordinary events of our lives. But here's the question for every one of us. How do we respond to those things? This morning I got up, I got in my truck, started down the road, and I noticed the gas tank was empty. The light was on. Brendan borrowed it. <laughs> it was raining pretty hard. Turned on the windshield wipers. The windshield wipers are broken. I mean, they're hanging on there. I'm just flipping and flopping. I can't see a thing. I said, I'm going to have to pull over and get some gas. Oh, my billfold. It's in the van. Tracy's at the church. I'll call her. Oh, I left my phone at home. <laughs> Now, that's the ordinary course of life. It just happens to us, right? The question is, how do we respond? Do we respond in our flesh? Do I get here and bless out Brendan? No, I didn't. <laughs> Wasn't his fault. He was helping somebody else and drained the gas out of my car. The windshield wiper broke on him, and he didn't have time this morning to fix it. I left my billfold. I left my phone and also left my sermon notes. So, <laughs> so now at this point, do I act in the promises of God? And do I trust God and say, God, you're in control and you're going to use all of this? So I got in here, I prayed with Caleb and Tracy and Brendan, a really quick prayer, met Keith in the driveway and said, I'm heading home, and came and, and I'm respecting God to do a blessing because God is here. So, so God uses our ordinary things in our life, but it's how do we respond? We can trust the promises of God. God is with us, right? When you walk through the fire, 
Isaiah 44, he is with you. When the rivers overflow you, he will not let you drown. He will uphold you by his righteous right hand. So we're going to live in a world filled with rough and stuff thing, tough things, but it's how do we respond? And the Galatians were responding by the flesh. Let me give you some examples in Abraham's life. We're not going to have time to, to, to turn to Genesis, but you can just, if you want to write these down and look at them this afternoon, you can. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Abraham was told to leave his country. He was told to leave his family and his kindred, and you go into a land that I will show you. Now, his natural man probably said, Ur of the Chaldees is a prosperous city. I don't even know where I'm going, and I'm not going to leave my family because this is a comfortable place to be. That's the natural tendency. That's the natural way of thinking. But Abraham instead responded to God's promise. I will give you a land that I will show you. So there he responded with promise. When we live by promise, it inspires wonder. When we live by the promises of God, it inspires a sense of awe, and it gives us a sense of expectation. What is God going to do in the midst of all of these circumstances? So in Genesis 12, 7, he goes and he looks at all this land, and God says to Abram, this is all yours. You trusted in my promise. You didn't trust in your natural man. You left the land. You left your family. You left your kindred. You left everything that was comfortable, and now you're following me. God might be speaking to your heart this morning. And you might need to come to Jesus Christ by faith alone and trust his promise. And you're saying, but I've got to leave what I'm comfortable with. I've got people who are not going to accept me any longer. I'm going to be challenged. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow if I trust Jesus. Just trust his promises. Believe in God. Be in awe. Be inspired of what he is going to give you if you will follow him. There may be some of us that God wants to take, to take you on a different path. And you're approaching something new this year that you've never faced before. Trust in God's provision and his plan. Another time when Abraham responded in promise is Genesis chapter 13 and verse 10. He and Lot are going to decide where they're going to live. Lot lifts up his eyes, and all he could see was with the natural eye. He saw the water land, or the land that was watered. It was fertilized. It was prosperous. He says, this is where I want. Now, Abraham, what are you going to take? So Abraham walks a little bit further, and then God says to Abram, Abram, Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw with his natural eyes. Abram, lift up your eyes. I want you now to see with your spiritual eyes. As far as you can see to the east, that is your land. As far as you can see to the west, that is your land. As far as you can see to the north and south, Abraham, this is all yours. Yes, Lot took what he saw with his natural eyes and says, this looks good and I want it right now. That's what the flesh does. That's what our ordinary natural man says. This looks good. I'm going to take it right now. Our spiritual man says, God, I'm going to trust you for something that I cannot see that you're going to do in my life. Another time, when God trusted in, Abraham trusted in the promises, when Lot was taken captive, chapter 14, 
22 and 23. Another time when Abraham trusted in the promises was, I'm sorry, when he, when he didn't trust in the promises and he got into his flesh when God told Abram that this was all yours, that I, God said, I am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. And Abram responded in his flesh, his natural mind. He says, but I'm childless. What are you going to give me? And he decides that Eliezer is going to be the heir, one born in his house. So in that instance, Abram looked at the promise, but he said, God, I don't see it happening so I'm going to run ahead of God. So that's another way that we can tell when we're in the flesh is when we're impatient and we're just going to run ahead and we're going to make a decision. The flesh looks at our ability to perform it. It makes logical choices, but it ignores the promises of God. It follows the human reasoning to the exclusion of the supernatural. The natural man requires no faith and may even be in accordance with what is socially acceptable. Take Hagar, have a child through her. Now, these two sons are two covenants, we're told, in verse 24. These things are allegorical. They are symbolic, for these are two covenants. The one is Mount Sinai, which gives birth to, uh, which gives birth or genders to, it, it is bringing forth a child that's in bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and it corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and is the mother of us all, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren. Paul here is using some irony. It, it is so, so cool what Paul is doing here, and, and, and so let's don't miss it. So let's just run through. Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where the law of Moses was given, right? He went up on Mount Sinai, got the Ten Commandments. That is Hagar. That's the slave woman. That represents the law, and that also represents present-day Jerusalem. And here's the irony. Present-day Jerusalem claimed to be descendants of Abraham. Jesus, when his dialogue with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, said, we have never been in bondage. Hagar responds to bondage. It's the Jerusalem that now is. And the Pharisees said, we have never been in bondage. And then they said, we, in John chapter 8, verse 39 through 40, it says, we are Abraham's descendants. And here's the irony. When you go into legalism, when you go into the flesh, you are actually descendants of Ishmael. You're not a true Jew. And they were so blinded by their rules and by their laws that they didn't even know that they were really not even Abraham's descendants. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's descendants, you would love me, but you're not. So Judaism, with all of its rituals, all of its sacrifices, all of its traditions, it neglected the weightier matters of the law. You hypocrites, he called them. You blind guides, he called them. Now, the other son, 
Isaac corresponds to the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. That's how the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. It has nothing to do with legalism. has nothing to do with rituals. has nothing to do with sacrifices. They were all pointing to Jesus. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things written in the book of the law to do them, for it is written, no, I just quoted that. It is written, cursed is everyone who does not. Now the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. And Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. And here's why. So that the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles in Christ, that we might receive the Spirit, the promise of the Spirit, through faith. Galatians 3.14. Galatians 3.29 says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abram's seed. If you're in Christ, so the Abrahamic covenant, the, the covenant through Isaac is fulfilled in Christ, then you're an heir according to promise. And here's the irony. The deeper meaning of Scripture foresaw this. Isaiah 54.1 is now quoted. Isaiah 54.1 says, Rejoice, O barren, you who bear not. Break forth, you shout, you who are desolate, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than the one who has a husband. So the present-day Jewish system prided themselves in being Abraham's seed. The Gentiles, who were considered dogs, the Gentiles who were considered Ishmael's descendants were actually the true descendants of Abraham. This, this helps us understand the New Testament. If we can get this into our minds, what Paul is doing here, there's so much in the New Testament that, that we don't gr grasp because we are thinking in modern 20th, 1st century mentality. We're not thinking biblically. We're not thinking... Paul's culture, we're not, we're not thinking Jew versus Gentile. This was the, the big dilemma in the New Testament, is how is Christ the Jewish Messiah when so many Jews are missing it? Aren't we really the descendants of Abraham? And Paul takes an entire letter to address that in the book of Romans, and in the letter to the Romans, he says, yes, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek, for herein is the righteousness of God revealed, for the just shall live by faith. So there's an interlocutor in the book of Romans who's asking questions. Well, what does it profit to be a Jew? If everybody's equally guilty, if I obey the law, I'm guilty, Gentiles don't obey the law of their conscience. They are guilty. We're all justified by faith. Well, then what is the benefit? So the interlocutor in the book of Romans is asking all these questions. What does it profit to be a Jew? And then you get to Romans chapter 9, and I think it's one of the most confusing chapters in the entire New Testament. If you look at it with the wrong eyesight, so many people come to Romans chapter 9, and they all of a sudden just switch gears. And they're saying, this is about election of individuals. That's never been the point in Paul's letter to the Romans throughout the entire book. The entire message is, those who are truly Israel are not Israel on the outside. 
when was Abraham justified? When he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was when he was uncircumcised. So let's continue that same hermeneutic when we approach chapter 9. The interlocutor of chapter 9 is saying, not why did God choose this person and why does he not choose this person? That's not the, that's not the context of Romans chapter 9. The context of Romans chapter 9 is, why is God hardening Israel? And why are Gentiles now coming to faith? We are Abraham's children. We ought to be saved. And he says, just look at two sons, Isaac and Jacob. I mean, Jacob and Esau. They had the same mama, the same papa, but you know what? They are not all heirs according to the promise. It has nothing to do with who your dad is or who your mom is. That's the point in Romans chapter 9. And then when he gets down to some of those really difficult passages, that God will have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and God will harden whom he wants to harden, and who are you, old man, that can answer back to God? Doesn't God have the right to take one lump of clay and do what he wants to with the other lump of clay? But this is the context. Listen to the historical context here. The historical context is that God has hardened rebellious Israel, just like he hardened rebellious Pharaoh. And why did he harden rebellious Pharaoh? It was so that the whole world could know who the one true Hebrew God was. God's doing the same thing with hard hearted Jews right now, and God can harden those who are self-rebellion, who don't want anything to do with God, and God said, you know what, I'm going to blind you, I'm going to harden you, I'm going to teach in parables so that it goes right over your head, and I'm going to pick 12 disciples out of this group, and they're going to take the gospels of the world, and you're going to crucify your own Messiah. And if God wants to show mercy to Gentiles, who you call dogs, and if God wants to show mercy to a tribe of Ishmaelites, then God is able to do that. And they were considered the barren ones. They were the ones who were considered who were desolate. They were the ones who were considered who did not have a husband. And God says, oh, open up your eyes to what God is doing because I am going to save anybody who comes to me by faith alone. And that's what Paul is getting at here. And that's what the New Testament is over and over again saying. When you look at the book of Ephesians, it's all about that. And so we have genocide from the historical, literal idea of what God is doing, and we've interpreted it by modern-day theology, and we've missed what God really is saying to us. That's one of my hobby horses, so forgive me. <laughs> Freedom is where true joy is found. The fulfillment of the promise brought laughter. Rejoice, O barren. Now we, brethren, are as Isaac. You know what Isaac literally means? It means laughter. Look at Genesis 21. Genesis chapter 21 is, a, is where this laughter um, is, is really seen, and it's also, we've got a play on words in the Hebrew language that we really don't see in the English so let's just turn over to Genesis 21 and read verses 1 through 7. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. 
the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. When I was studying this, the word as jumped off the pages to me. It's the Hebrew word kathos, which means exactly in the same manner as. And so in the exact same manner as he said, the Lord did. In the exact same manner as he spoke, the Lord did. God's promises can be trusted. And then God's timing is perfect. Verse 2, for Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time that God had spoken. Abraham called the name of his son whom he was born to him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. Now, why did he call him Isaac? Let me just read to you a long quote from some German scholars named Kyle, and his partner was Dalich. But this is what this commentary says about the naming of Isaac. The name for the promised son had been selected by God himself in correspondence with Abraham's laughing in Genesis chapter 17 and in Sarah's laughing to indicate the nature of this birth and its existence. What kind of birth was it going to be? It was it going to be a natural birth? Was it going to be a birth according to the flesh? Or was it going to be a supernatural child and his existence so unexpected? For as his laughing sprang from the contrast between the idea and the reality. So what these two German scholars were saying is that sometimes we see the idea and it just seems so impossible, but the reality of it is what God can do that brought the laughter. So through a miracle of grace, the birth of Isaac gave the effect to this contrast between the promise of God and the pledge of its fulfillment. The incapacity, incapacity of Abraham for begetting children and for Sarah begetting them, on the other hand, through this name, Isaac was designated as the fruit of the omnipotent grace working against and above all forces of nature. And so this, when you and I live by the promises of God, rather than in our natural way of responding, this brings joy. Second thing it brings is it brings persecution. And this is back in Genesis 21, Verse 9, it says, And Sarah saw Hagar, the Egyptian whom she bore to Abraham. The old King James says mocking. The new King James says scoffing, same idea. But it's literally the word laughing, but it's in a different stem in the Hebrew, and it's, in, it's an intensified use of this word. And according to the context, it can tell you how it should be translated. The other time that this word is used in that same form is Genesis chapter 39, and I think it's verse 17. You can check me on that one. I'm not sure what verse it is, but it's when the Hebrew child or the Hebrew slave, Pharaoh's wife, Potiphar's wife said, you brought this Hebrew slave, and it's the same Hebrew word for laughing, but it's in that intensified form to mock, to scoff. So it has an idea of ridicule, of taking something that's sacred and just desecrating it. That's the idea when it's used in this way. 
And so what was Isaac doing? Isaac was a, a teenager. He's in his, his adolescence. The weaning festival was when a child went from infancy to become a child, and this was to celebrate this child becoming the heir. And here is Isaac, the natural one of the flesh. He's been the apple of his dad's eye all this time. He is the firstborn. He is strong. He's rugged. He's going to be a wild donkey one day. And many nations are going to come from him. And here this little kid, he's going to inherit all this. Isaac says, no, it's all going to be through me, Isaac is thinking. So persecution is to be expected. The natural man does not understand what is spiritual. It's belittled. It's looked down on. If you tell people that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you tell people that you believe that Jesus Christ has forgiven you, if you tell people that I believe I've got an eternal inheritance in heaven because a man 2,000 years ago laid down his life, it will be mocked, it will be ridiculed, it doesn't make any sense that a lamb, as we sang this morning, would take the sin of the world. It's looked down on, it's despised, it's looked down as foolish. The scripture commands that we act decisively with legalism. These two sons could not coexist. So what did God command? He said, listen to your wife. This was a grievous thing to Abram, or Abraham at this time, to cast out this child. But God said, listen to her, because this one will not co-inherit with this promised son. These things were allegorical to teach you and I some things. So what can we take away this morning? One, the living God demands that we live by his promises. God means what he says, and we can trust him. The Lord visited Sarah as he said. He did for Sarah as he spoke. Sarah conceived and bore a son in the old age at the set time which God had spoken. You and I can trust the promises of God. Second, when we are living by the promises of God, you will replace despair with a sense of wonder, a sense of amazement, a sense of awe, and a sense of expectation. It's so so easy just to look with our natural eyes. And I could give you illustration after illustration from Tracy's nice personal life where God sometimes puts us in these really, really hard situations. And he probably does the exact same thing for you, and you can relate to it this morning. And yet when you turn that difficult situation into praise and awe and wonder, God does some amazing things. Third, we can choose if we're going to live our life through the lens of the natural eye or the spiritual eye. The natural eye, what's the natural eye do? The natural eye looks at our circumstances. It looks at our oppositions. It looks at our resources. The spiritual eye looks to God who says, I can do all things who strengthens you. I will be your shield. When you walk through the fire, you're not going to be burned. I will give you all things that you need for life and godliness. That's the spiritual eye. True freedom and joy comes when we are walking by faith. 
Lastly, as Christians, we can expect persecution, mocking, scoffing, but we don't need to compromise. We are sons of the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the mother of us. By faith, when Abraham was called to go out into a place which he should afterwards receive for an inheritance, he obeyed. He went out not knowing where he went. By faith, he sojourned in a land of promise as a stranger in a country dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob. And this is why Abraham and you and I are looking for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So the incompatibility between law and grace. The choice is ours today. Are we going to live under freedom? Are we going to live with awe and wonder and worship? Are we going to live limiting God or expecting God? Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, God, thank you so much for taking this Old Testament story and opening our eyes to the deep spiritual significance of so many of these Old Testament passages. God, my prayer today, if nothing else that we got out of this, when we leave this place today, that God, that we would come to your word. And God, that we wouldn't just read it thinking that we know it because we understand it. But God, that we would hear the deep, eternal, lasting truths. That God, that we would plummet the depths of your word. And God, that we would hunger for it. That we would see the richness of your word. That God, that it has, has an eternal meaning. And God, that every time I come to it, it's got a new, new application through that one eternal historical meaning. God, give us a passion to walk in your grace. God, help us never to be entangled with yokes of bondage, thinking it's going to make us spiritual. God, may we rejoice. May we take joy knowing that, God, that what we cannot do, what seemingly is impossible for us, as it was for Abraham to have a child and for a wife that was barren, that, God, you delight in abundantly above all that we ask or think. That's the God that we serve. And God, I pray that we would never, never run from persecution. But God, that we would accept it and we would cast it out and say, God, I'm going to live by your promises. I'm going to rejoice in your word and I'm going to experience the living God, not what my natural man expects, but God, what you can do through your 